This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm superstar Frank Morano. I am a gambler. I don't think I'm a problem gambler, mostly because I don't have the money to be a problem gambler. But I enjoy going to a casino in Atlantic City or wherever else. I've played in Vegas. I've played in uh, the Catskills. I've played in uh, Bermuda. A couple other places. I've played in uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. A couple other places. Mostly Atlantic City. That's my go-to spot, by the way. Happy to be heard right now on um, Talk 1400 WOND in Atlantic City. And, you know, I like craps. I play blackjack once in a while. I'll play uh, Baccarat. I hate playing roulette, but for some reason, I always get suckered in to playing roulette. I have a tough time walking past that roulette table, and if I see red has come out eight, nine times in a row, okay, it's bound to be black. Let me place $100 on black. Okay, it's red again. It's probably going to be black now. Let me place $200 on black. All right, black came out. Now what do I do? Well, whatever. You get the the point. I, I... Always say that I don't play roulette, but I do once in a while. One thing that I've never really gotten that into is sports betting. I've played sports bets before, never placed an illegal sports bet in my life, and given the number of of gangsters and bookies that I know, that's a, a pretty impressive thing, I think. But, um, you know, I'm a Mets fan, so a lot of times during baseball season, I'll place, you know, $100 on the Mets if I feel good about their chances, or, you know, on a, on a football game or something like that. I've done that in Lang City, I've done that in Vegas, and, you know, it's fine. I've never really gotten into digital sports betting and online sports betting. About three weeks ago, I placed my first digital sports bet you know, from my mobile phone. And I won. Great. And I used the money to buy stamps. Um, well, actually, no. First, I placed a 90-cent sports bet, and I won that. And then that became, I think, $1.74. And I, I said, let me bet that. And then it became $3 and, and change. And then I placed a more substantial bet, and then I used that money to buy uh, postage stamps right before they raised the price. The point is, it's not my thing, but, This is all the rage right now. The whole world, the whole country at least, is on fire when it comes to legal digital sports betting. Bets that you can place right from your phone. And there is a fascinating situation going on in professional sports right now. One of the reasons that for years they never wanted Las Vegas to have a professional sports team, either football, hockey, or baseball, and it looks like now they're going to have all three, is because they were concerned about the influence of betting on the players for that team. They were concerned that gamblers would pay off these players and they would do things like uh, shave points or whatever, whatever the case may be. The reason 
that Pete Rose is not in the Hall of Fame for baseball, even though he has you know over 4,000 hits, which is almost a superhuman feat, is because he bet on baseball, including games that he was managing. Now, as far as I can tell, um, and who knows other than Pete Rose exactly what he was betting on, but he bet on the Reds. He bet on his own team, the team that he was managing, to win. Now, it's not right, and you shouldn't do it. But that was enough, even though those bets took place in the 80s, to keep him out of the Hall of Fame and ban him for baseball for life. So there's a pretty strict line of demarcation. You're not supposed to bet on games that you're involved with as a player, as a manager, as a coach. Okay. There is a story that has gone ultra-viral in the New England area. There is a player, a football player, by the name of Keishon Boutte. I believe that's the proper pronunciation. If that's not the proper pronunciation, you're welcome to call in and correct me. 800-848-9222. Keishon Boutte played his first season as a member of the New England Patriots this past season. Patriots are out of it. Now it's all the, uh, obviously, the 49ers and the Chiefs. And this was his first season as a professional. However, he made bets on an app like DraftKings, FanDuel, Caesar. He made bets on an app in college as an underage person. See, 21 is the legal age to bet. And he made over 8,900 bets while he was underage, while he was in college, in, yes, games that he was playing in. This was an average of, he bet on an average of over 20 games a day during the period in question. Some of the bets were on LSU, his college team, as he played in them. He was betting on games he played in as a college student. And at least one bet, was an over-under for his receiving the yards. So understand, he wasn't just betting, oh, I I support my team, my team's going to win. He bet on himself. He signed his NFL contract in May. So far, nothing has come out of, uh, you know, about him betting since then. But this is now, according in the last day or two, This is now being investigated by the NFL. The NFL is investigating these accusations that the Patriots wide receiver, Keyshawn Boutte, placed 8,927 bets in a 13-month span while at LSU. And my question for you is, look, they didn't catch him when he was in college. Now he's a professional. So far, there's no indication that he's ever placed a bet on a professional football game, which, again, there's a strict prohibition about you're not supposed to do. What, if anything, should happen to this guy? Because with the Super Bowl, in with it, the very first Super Bowl in the history of Las Vegas taking center stage for the next 10 days, gambling is going to be a pretty important element of this. And now, coming out yesterday, the NFL revealing that it's investigating this Patriots-wide receiver. This is going to be very interesting. And now, 
he's actually been arrested by the Louisiana State Police in relation to this 13-month run of sports gambling that he allegedly engaged in while in that state. So in a warrant issued for his arrest, Louisiana authorities allege that Butte placed at least 8,927 online bets between April 6, 2022 and May 7, 2023, which encompassed his final season playing for LSU. And at the time of the alleged wagers... This man, Butte, was 20 years old and not legally allowed to gamble in the state. Authorities also claim that 17 of the bets were on NCAA football games, including six involving LSU. So, so far, there have not been any allegations that Butte, um, you know, did anything like uh, take money from a gambler to throw a game or anything along those lines. But I'm curious. Now, obviously, he's going to have to deal with the legal ramifications of betting before he was old enough to. You know, you got to be 21. He was 20. But what should the NFL do with this? Here's a professional player that placed an enormous amount of bets while he was a college player. What should the NFL do? Should they do nothing? Should they just kind of let law enforcement do what they're going to do? Or should there be some sort of a suspension here? Because I have to tell you, I have noticed the last few years, the and I brought this up, I think, with Dominic Carter last week. Um, maybe it was even Monday, I don't remember. But I think it was last week. I honestly think that the surge in legal sports betting is part of the reason for the surge in viewership of the NFL these days. I think you're seeing people watching games they would never have watched in an era before they could place bets on these games. And, you know, I have a cousin uh, who is a young man. He's over the age of 21, but he's, you know, a younger guy. And I, um, he's placing these bets all day long on all these games. And I said, oh, what team did you bet on in, in this game? He said, oh, the outcome of the game doesn't matter to me. I'm just best. I'm betting on the players. I'm placing prop bets on the players. And the NFL has seriously benefited from the interest due to legal sports betting. So I think if they come down hard on this and they suspend this guy while they're benefiting from this whole new level of fandom, I think it's. A little bit hypocritical. I'm curious what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I don't see how the NFL can punish him for stuff that he did when he was a college player. If they find that he did this while he's an NFL player, that's a different ball game. But I think they have to say, look, if I was the commissioner, I would say, uh, look, you know, he's going to have to face the music. Whatever the criminal justice system does with him, the criminal justice system will do. But as far as we can tell, he never violated any NFL policies. And that's that. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Because the revelation of this investigation comes at a very interesting intersection for the league, which will find itself under a huge microscope 
for the next 10 or 11 days with the first Las Vegas Super Bowl. Because as it stands now, the NFL and its teams have all sorts of gambling advertising. It's not just the ratings that they're benefiting from, it's the advertising. You you watch a football game, every other commercial is DraftKings, is FanDuel, is Caesars. So I really think that the, the NFL has been kind of doing the ostrich routine. They're sticking their head in the sand saying, oh, gambling, what gambling, what gambling? But they're cashing the checks from the people that are making all sorts of money with gambling. Curious what you think. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Hey, coming up in about uh, 15 minutes, we're going to talk with Helena Kelly. Uh, she's going to join us from across the pond in the U.K. Uh, she has written a book called The Life and Lies of Charles Dickens. Really interesting book. Uh, caused me to learn a great deal about, about uh, Charles Dickens and, uh, you know, let it be said that uh, this is a radical reassessment of the famed Victorian author, and we're going to get into we're going to get into that in a in a big way. All right, uh, Mark is in New York. Hi, Mark. Yes, Frank. Uh, I can't really weigh in on this particular incident, but uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Arch Sleister from the Baltimore Colts back in the early '80s. He was a number one draft pick. He had gotten himself. Pretty involved with the gambling, uh, like a couple hundred thousand dollars. He had to go to the Colts, who had to pay uh, all the bookies off, and uh, you know. And then he just uh, ruined his career. He never, he never, uh, he was never able to get over it. And uh, you know, he it just he went in all other areas, and you know, jail time and everything. But he was he was top Ohio State player. Uh, Baltimore Colts uh, had the whole franchise riding on him. And, uh, you know, this is way before, obviously, way before uh, doing anything on the phone. But uh, I'm just saying this this has been, this has happened before. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I'm sure it has. I'm sure it's old, as old as, as sports itself. I think the the situation now, and I guess what makes this different, is that uh, this is the first time that we're seeing at the NFL benefit from so much sports advertising. JR in Brooklyn, give me your view. Oh, the NFL should do absolutely nothing here. They have nothing to do with it. He was placing, he said, what do you have, six out of almost 9,000 bets on himself? Like, it's... it's what, maybe it's, less. It's, it's a maybe little less. unethical, yeah. but... Yeah, maybe less. It's unethical on his part. It's the NFL. It's the home of, of non-ethical. You know, how many, crim- how many college kids have been charged with crimes, of like felonies, you know, real serious crimes against other persons? This kid, is, the NFL has no way to do anything. And he had nothing to do with the NFL. It's not like he was betting on himself while he was a under contract with the NFL. Yeah, I mean, I, I am exactly where you are, Jr. I, I think, um, you know, look, if he broke the law, you know, let the cops investigate. If they have to charge him with right. something, so be it. But um, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think the NFL really has any role here uh, at all. I, I think they need to, uh, you know, basically say this has nothing to do with us. If it's proven that he bet on a, a National Football League game, then that's a different story. But as far as anything that happened before he was an NFL player, who cares uh, if you're them? 
Yeah. Thank you, JR. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Patrick, what's on your mind? Good morning, Frank. Yeah, they're hypocrites, NFL. Uh, they projected to make $2.3 billion from these uh, you know, DraftKings and these other websites. And they, they, they call it a uh, – that doesn't include what they call an integrity fee, if that's uh, – you talk about an oxymoron. So, well, what's an yeah, integrity fee? I don't know. I remember hearing about that one time. Uh, that's something they have uh, some kind of uh, agreement with uh, these uh, gambling websites. Okay. Well, that's it. Yeah, that is bizarre. Thank you, Patrick. 800-848-9222. Melvin is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hi, Melvin. The NFL is very hypocritical. Jim Brown touched on the late Jim Brown touched on in his book Alabama's because number one, they go most of these on the team owned it, they own race horses. How the heck they gonna tell us? Yeah, and how do you legislate morality? It's a waste of the taxpayers when they go out to someone who they need to legalize gambling nationwide and collect the tax revenue. This way this will reduce our personal income tax. Cause people gonna gamble, people gonna get intoxicated, and definitely people gonna fall the gate. So when you talk about the issue of morality and you need to let Pete Rose go into Hall of Fame. Oh well so I agree. I agree with that, Melvin. Uh, uh, for I mean, look, I, I think um, you know he's now admitted it for years. Everyone say, "Oh no, you can't let Pete Rose in. You can't let Pete Rose in because he's never he's never admitted to gambling. Now he's admitted it, uh, to it. I think he's actually even apologized, but don't quote me on that. But he's not doing the Sergeant Schultz routine that he did years ago. That's for sure. Ron is in Michigan. Hi, Ron. Hi, Frank. I, I say the mafia rules gambling still in this country and in the world, and they rule the NFL and nothing's going to happen. And what makes me sick is you see these big NFL players touting gambling, touting gambling, or these black celebrities touting gambling. And how many poor families are going into divorce, beatings, robberies, murders, because of gambling, gambling. It's nothing but mafia, plain and simple well, money. So, Ron, forward. tell me, because uh, I'm interested in what you're saying, um, because from what it looks like to me, it's not that at all. From what it looks like to me, it's the corporations that are the new mafia. It's the corporations that are making it's money. It's called going legit. It's called going legit, Frank. They're all legit now. Plain yeah, and simple. I, I, I um, see that. That's not how I see it, right? I mean, I uh, don't see um, the guy that was was running numbers now becoming the lotto dealer. I don't. I, I don't see the guy that was, uh, you know, a bookmaker now working for DraftKings. I, I see people still gambling. The only difference is now that it's gone from something that was in back alleys to something that is mainstream and advertised on network television. I, I see it uh, going from something that was uh, something that was shh, whispered about, sometimes an open secret, to now just being open. So I don't think um, I, I don't think it's a, a mafia run thing at all. I think it's a corporate run thing, totally. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Joaquin is in Pennsylvania. Hi, Joaquin. Oh, Frank, buddy. Hey, you know what? I'm getting to like you more and more, but you are confusing the living crap out of me because you keep changing subjects so much. Casino gambling. Oh my gosh. Something I love because I got to be treated like a high roller because an ex-boss took me to go play with him. <laughs> and I got to show that to my wife, too. If you want to make a bet on the roulette wheel, if you have enough money, you got to play it through for a while. 
place either red or black, odd or even, and then put the street in the middle all the way up, and then put a bet that goes in between the zero of double zero and another bet that intersects the line underneath. Yeah, well, so I don't like that method, honestly. I I mean, the best, uh, first of all, I don't like bet, betting roulette in general, but if, if you are going to bet roulette, the best roulette betting method that I've, um, I've, ever come across is the Uncle Floyd method where you place two bets. You bet you bet one through twelve and you bet two through twelve. And then um you you know you will win chances are one of those bets and then whichever one of those hits you move them to uh one the, the third one that doesn't hit uh say twenty four through thirty six or you know twelve okay. through twenty four and then you end up winning small but you win if, if you play that in the long long run uh, but it's the okay. you know and again I, I don't think roulette is a good game because it doesn't play true no. it doesn't pay true odds but there's just something about walking by that roulette table when it's hit red nine times in a row and even though I know intellectually that that doesn't change the odds of whether it's going to be red black or green on the next spin there's just something about seeing oh there's a streak of nine reds in a row I gotta put a hundred bucks on black that I okay. have found very difficult to resist yeah, but you know what? Give me a second here. I know Baccarat inside and out because uh, I don't want to say I got compensated. But anyway, we used to collect all the information from the shoes because you can write mark everything down in the shoe, and it shows you everything that goes on in a 50-50 proposition. Now, if you have a chance, look up a guy named Don Johnson, and he owns a thing known as the Heritage Club. And this guy stocked the casinos for a couple million sure. dollars. Sure. No, I remember. I, I, followed, I followed that run very closely. I, I'm going to tell you right now, I tabulated some stuff, and what you find with the 50-50 proposition is so amazing. And anybody plays in a casino where they're changing blackjack, that they're going to pay blackjack like one and a quarter and one and a half. If they change the rules of classic blackjack, I would walk away from that table because that you have a half a – the casino only has about a half of a percent edge over you in blackjack. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, in the case of Don Johnson, and, and thanks for the call, Joaquin, in the case of Don Johnson, and this is not the actor, Don Johnson, but in the case of Don Johnson, that was by, uh, Blackjack, not Baccarat, but he was able to play under certain rules, and they gave him more advantageous rules because he was such a high roller. They basically gave him the opportunity for... Um, I, I don't remember the circumstances, but then they wouldn't. He won a couple of million, as uh, Joaquin mentioned, and then he wanted to keep playing. They said, "No, you can't play under these rules anymore. If you want to keep playing, that's fine, but you got to go out there, meaning where all the regular players were playing, and you have to play by the regular rules that they're playing by." And he didn't want to play at that point anymore by the same rules that everybody else is uh, is playing in. Um, all right, we're going to talk about Charles Dickens in just a moment, and we'll continue with your calls a bit later. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
everybody is familiar with Charles Dickens. Obviously, I don't think there are many stories that are more famous than A a Christmas Carol. Um, But it really goes so far beyond that. You talk about Oliver Twist, Great Expectations, David Copperfield, and countless others that you may not necessarily know. Not only books, but short stories and a bunch of other things. And there's this total mythology that has developed over the course of the last 150 years or so about Charles Dickens. Not only his works but about the man himself. And there's been a lot of interest in how the characters depicted in his works may have been reflected of the life that he lived himself. And uh, next week, it will be Charles Dickinson's birthday. He was born February 7th, 1812. And there has been a fascinating new look at Charles Dickens And it's caused me to actually, and I don't really read a lot of fiction, but it's caused me to want to go back and reread some of the Dickens books that I haven't read in years to see if I'm going to read them with new eyes and detect anything now. Because the book that I have um, been reading for the last two weeks is sort of revisionist literary history, and I mean that in the absolute best sense of the word. I am very, very pleased to be joined by... Helena Kelly, a professor of English literature and author whose latest book is The Life and Lies of Charles Dickens. Uh, Helena, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Good morning. Hi, hello, good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I should probably say uh, I'm not a professor in the English sense, have been in the American sense, just it's a, it's a, slightly, different, it's a slightly different title over here. But, um, uh, but yeah, I have, I have taught English literature at university. Well, you know, given the fact that... myself. <laughs> given the fact that we're talking to a lot of Americans, we'll, we'll give you that title of, uh, okay. of professor. Uh, but um, you're, you're an author in every sense, the American and the English sense, that's for sure. Um, so, Alan, yeah. <laughs> obviously you've done a lot of writing over the years. You're clearly very interested in, uh, in literature. Tell me um, why Charles Dickens? What, what first sparked your interest in looking at the, the life and literary works of Charles Dickens? Um, well, so I actually uh, grew up uh, in uh, a place called the Medway Towns, which is in Kent um, in England, which is where um, Dickens spent huge portions of his life. So when he was a child, he lived there. Um, he spent his honeymoon there. Um, he lived there when after he had his first baby. Um, and uh, when he was finally rich enough to kind of buy a house, uh, for himself, that was where he decided to buy a house. So um, I, I've kind of, it, it, it's an area that's really kind of like steeped in Dickens, the road names, like in the housing estate, sure. like named after Dickens characters. Um, and a lot of, um, a lot of his stories are set there. So it's where Great Expectations is set, the marshes, I actually kind of grew up on, on the marshes that Great Expectations is set. So he was, um, he's kind of, he's kind of always been a constant in my life um, in, in some ways. But I, um, I I started really to to kind of wonder why whether whether the things that I'd always been told about him were, were necessarily true. Um, I mean, I kind of this is this is this is sort of my my thing in a way. So I, oh, I've also written on Jane Austen that, that mm-hmm. sort of um, the idea being very much that that sometimes um, we can be too familiar with writers 
and that kind of it's sort of we we think we know things about them because we've been told things about them and quite often those turn out not to be all that accurate um and so i think i think that quite often our kind of reading of these very very famous like these great like really well known and 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 well read texts gets a bit kind of pushed off to one side from from, from where it should be so that that's kind of my my general um general kind of um uh, concentration work wise before we um, before we discuss the deep dive you did into dickens life here which is a fascinating bit of uh literary detective work did you have a favorite or do you have a favorite charles dickens book um i love great expectations mm-hmm. um and i also love um the novel that he was working on when he died that he didn't actually get a chance to finish which is the mystery of edwin drood uh which is also set where I grew up, so you can you can literally like walk around um, the, the the places where it's set. All the buildings are still there, um, and uh, yeah, I just I've, I've always found it from, from when I was quite young very kind of very engaging. It's a great like it's a great story if people haven't read it. And it's not it's not maybe one of the best known ones, um, wow. and it does break off about halfway through um, because he died very suddenly. Sure, well that'll um, that'll that'll bring in a fantastic read nevertheless. That, that'll bring a speedy <laughs> end to anybody's book, I would think. Um, <laughs> One of the things that I don't know that I had a full appreciation of uh, prior to reading through your book, and we're talking with Helena Kelly, she's the author of The Life and Lies of Charles Dickens, is how big of a celebrity Charles Dickens was. I mean, he was in his day, this was not just someone that experienced posthumous fame, this was someone that was even bigger than Stephen King was when he was alive, right? Speak to that, his level of celebrity while he was living. Um, it, I, I hadn't actually sort of appreciated properly until I started working on the book how quickly it all happened. So um, Dickens kind of, um, <clears throat> he basically gets into journalism when he's in his late teens, early 20s. Um, one of his um, uncles uh, owned a, a sort of small newspaper, so that was how, how he got into it. Um, and uh, then he kind of started writing these little short stories. Um, and then he was, um, he was kind of commissioned to um, write the write the copy, I guess, um, for a a, a, um, a sort of serial story um, called the Pickwick Papers, um, but he wasn't he wasn't kind of the main draw there. Like the um, the main draw was the illustrator. You know, it was a guy called Robert Seymour. He was really really well known at the time. He did these like comic comic pictures that would then be like reproduced and sold in shops and things. Um, but uh, and so they start working on the Pickwick Papers. Do the first couple of um, first couple of sort of um, uh, uh, installments of it. Um, and then very, very sadly, Seymour, who, who had had ongoing mental health issues, um, took his own life. And they decide that they are going to go on with the project, get in a new illustrator. And then sort of almost immediately after this happens, and this is also like just after Dickens has got married, so he's been married for like, you know, six weeks when this happens, um, all of a sudden, the Pickwick Papers goes stratospheric. People go mad for it, um, you know. And, and within a, a matter of months, so by the time his first son is born, which is you know, almost exactly nine months um, after he got married, um, like he is famous. Like, and and it is a level of mm. celebrity, very, very, very similar to, to kind of the celebrity that that we, we, you you might think of. Now, it, it, it is it very quickly becomes. Um, basically, kind of like influencer level. Like it's a, he's he's a big name, and people, the, the the press is sort of 
the press is all over him. They have sto- they run stories about like his siblings and his father, and um, it, it clearly is a very is a very kind of um, stressful situation for him to be in because obviously, like most celebrities, you you need the press, right? You you've you've got this, you've got you you are the you are the products that you want to sell. Um, Dickens, in fact, you very quickly uh, end up with a with a lot of people who are financially dependent on him, and so he needs to he needs to kind of keep the press on side, and he does. He sort of feeds them stories, um, he does press releases, but he also and whether this is kind of direct re, re, kind of reaction in a way, he also makes quite sure that there is stuff that they don't find out about, um, and there are several things um, in his kind of childhood and early life that he is clearly very, very, very protective of and very, very reluctant um, to let anybody know. Um, and so he kind of, he plays the game, publicity-wise, um, and he uh, he sets up this persona, um, which is very kind of, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a great husband and father. He's very kind of domestically minded. He runs, all through the 1850s, a magazine called Household Words. Um, so just to kind of um, like bed into that, you know, this is this is like Victorian um, domesticity, the Victorian family. It's very kind of you know, cozy and, and engaging. Um, and um, yeah, you know, he does lots of very prominent charity work. Um, he has this kind of public persona um, that he is very happy um, to, to kind of engage with the press in in that persona. Um, but there's there's a lot of stuff going on behind that he he kind of doesn't really doesn't really talk so much about. Um, but it, it turns out that <clears throat> actually quite often that's bubbling up mm. in his um, in his work in, in kind of unexpected places. Uh, we're talking with Helena Kelly. Her book is uh, The Life and <laughs> Lies of Charles Dickens. We're going to get into some of those lies uh, momentarily. Uh, Helena, um, Dickens found that his fame, sudden and incredible as it was, was a bit of a mixed blessing. How, how so? What was the what was the problem with the degree of fame that he achieved? Um, I mean, partly I think the problem was that he was expected to uh, work at an absolutely astonishing rate. I mean, you, he, um, uh, we, we, we know all these kind of like famous novels. Um, he actually starts working on Oliver Twist when he hasn't finished the Pickwick Papers. So there's a oh. period where he's working on both of them simultaneously, um, and both, both in installments. So he, he, you know, he, has a, he has deadlines. He has to produce a certain number of words by a certain day. Um, and then when he's halfway through all of the twists, he starts working on Nicholas Nickleby, which is his next novel. Um, he does uh, nonfiction work. He's still um, kind of carrying on with, with sort of, um, you know, other projects. He's got, he's got this, there's, there's this terrible sort of little comic opera that he, he works on. There are plays that he does that are sort of adaptations of his stories. Um, so I, I think he, he kind of certainly in that early period of his life, he's under an astonishing amount of stress, like really uh, just it, it it must have been i i can't imagine working like that with that much public scrutiny um and with people kind of so so hungry for what you were going to produce next and of course the press you know the press always does this right it, it builds people up and then it starts kind of pulling them down a bit oh this story isn't so good oh why is he doing this oh why is he not faster at, at producing whatever um and um, so he he does you know, he does experience an awful an awful lot of stress, um, and there are kind of there are various sort of you know private stresses in his life. His father um, uh, was a financial nightmare. Essentially, got into a lot of debt 
um, and sort of always expected someone else to get him out of it. Mm. Um, and that, that quickly becomes Charles's job. Um, and so he's, he, he has, uh, uh, um, he, he basically, it, it really does seem to be the case that he, uh, when his, um, so his sister-in-law, after, after he got married, his um, sister-in-law, uh, Mary, uh, basically came to live with him and his, his, his wife, Catherine, which was not, not particularly unusual at the time. Um, and um, Mary and Dickens became very close. And then she suddenly died um, very, very suddenly. Um, she, it was, um, you know, sort of they've been out of the theatre and then they come home and, you know, a day later she's dead. Um, and this was a this this seems to have been a kind of trigger, I guess, for him to have a nervous breakdown. Mm. Um but uh, obviously, there's all this. There's all this other stuff going. On. You know, it's just he's, you know, he's working at a like, a, like just uh, putting so much pressure on himself, work-wise, having all this. You know, the the, the the death of his first collaborator, I think, really did bother him much, much more than he he let on. He found it they they had had a they'd had a work disagreement um, just before Seymour um, decided to mm. to kind of take his own life, and he did it in a very violent way. Um, and um, uh, so he, he basically, when when Mary dies, this is just kind of this is this is the last straw, and he um, he clearly there's a there's a period where he he can't he, he doesn't actually hit his deadlines for the for the two books that he's working on, um, and that's all over the press as well. Mm. Um, and there are stories all over the press that oh you know he's ill basically he's been like he's had to stop because like he's depressed he's kind of you know paralysed and uh, like with with um, you know, like grief and is unable to work. Um, so very, like very, very exposing, very kind of, um, uh, I mean, I can't, I, I can't really imagine what it must be like to, to have, have that happen to you, to have sort of, you know, public speculation on, on not only what's going on in your, in your kind of family circle, but what's, you know, what's going on in, with, with your right. mental health. Um, and, um, yeah, it's a um, it, it, it's one of the, it actually makes me feel quite sorry for him in a way that despite all this, despite all this success, he kind of gets he he yeah he 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 sort of um, he he clearly finds it deeply deeply upsetting and he he sort of you know he he again he he starts he starts to drop all these this is this is pretty much the point at which he starts to kind of um, uh, clearly insert stories into the press um, and uh, he sort of claims oh it's all a joke. You know, obviously, um, obviously, I'm fine. There's nothing really wrong sure. with me. Um, but actually, the rumours kind of carry on for several years after that. It does. It does seem to be the case that he was, um, he was certainly, he was certainly suffering a lot of stress. I mean, and whether like it, it, exactly what what kind of form that took, whether he he was having a breakdown, whether he was depressed, whether he was. Um, but um, you know, it's um, it, it was he 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 sort of found. I think that he he'd entered into this like you know. Faustian bargain um, with the press and with the public, where he, you know, they they wanted they wanted more and more and more of him, and he gets so he and he sort of he that that's that's when he sort of starts creating this persona that in fact bears very little resemblance to him, um, like to the real to the real person, and he so, manages. Yeah. So what is, what is the difference, Helena, between the persona that he created versus reality? What well, give us some of the key disparities? Um. Well, it, 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 it's 
fascinating persona in a way. So there's this book, um, there's this book that's published in 1844, which is called uh, A New Spirit of the Age, um, which is basically, um, it, it, it's sort of this, um, uh, uh, it has these uh, sort of portraits, pen portraits, um, and in fact, um, physical like picture portraits of various different like famous new Victorians. Obviously, Queen Victoria had just come to the throne um, at the end of the 1830s. Um, and uh, and so this is oh we've got you know we've got a new queen things always go well when we have a queen um, you know this is and this is this is like a new age and these are the new people who are going to shape it and there are there are some some other names in the book that that people might recognise there are also some people who are completely obscure now but the first one one on the you know, the first chapter um, is on Charles Dickens but um and it's a uh, and it talks about all his work and it's it's very very flattering um, but it's also really fascinating to see how little biographical information on him they've managed to get right um this is so so the author was a guy he knew um clearly he'd kind of gone and uh, he'd gone and interviewed all the people that he writes these essays about um but he hadn't got anything out of dickens so there's nothing about where dickens went to school there's nothing about his family background there's nothing about where he grew up it's as if he kind of sprang to life fully formed to write the pickwick papers and as if there's sort of nothing, there's nothing in, there's, there's nothing behind him. Um, and um, obviously, of course, and we, and we, we, we know this certainly now, um, how um, that, that he had, in fact, quite a difficult childhood. Mm. Um, his uh, father was in prison for debt um, in, uh, when, um, uh, when Dickens was a little boy, when he was kind of 10, 11. Um, and he possibly um, was um, forced to go and work um, in this terrible sort of tumble-down warehouse on the banks of the Thames. We we now know, um, or we've been told, um, that um, uh, his uh, um, that that when he writes uh, the, the the very similar scenes in David Copperfield, where David is kind of you know forced to go and taken out of school, forced to go and work. Um, in this kind of you know horrible place on the banks of the Thames, that's basically kind of autobiographical. And I, um, one of the things I kind of explore in the book is, is is how how to what extent that's actually true. But of course, at the time, like people didn't know this. That wasn't that wasn't revealed until after Dickens died by his uh, by his friend and his biographer, this guy called John Forster. Um, and so it's it, it's kind of this fascinating. Um, it, it, it's, he, so Dickens, to his first readers during his lifetime, is this sort of fascinatingly rootless man. Like we don't, they didn't know mm. anything about his early life at all. Um, and um, it, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating to see the extent to which he managed to keep that going. Like he mm. gave the press certain things, but that whole that that whole kind of early life, which obviously he draws on all the time in his writing, like he needs to draw on it. Um, he, he does manage for his entire life, basically, to keep that, um, to keep that private. Uh, one of the things that I've heard about Dickens from time to time over the years is that um, his, his characters and some of the phraseology that he uses, both in his works and maybe even in his, his life beyond the written word, is that there's a strain of anti-Semitism to some of his writings. Did your research show that at all? Um, I, I mean, yeah, there's, there's some appalling anti-Semitism, um, particularly in his, in his early words. I mean, Dickens has a, 
Um, Dickens has some moments um, in, in private letters, in kind of journalism, and in his novels and, and, and stories, where, frankly, he says some pretty awful stuff uh, about a lot of different um, ethnic groups. Um, but, uh, I mean, there's, there's a particularly awful um, letter um, that he writes um, uh, after the, uh, the Indian uprising in, in, in 1857. Um, and that is, I, I mean, the, the stuff in that is so horrible that I'm not, I'm not even going to repeat it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the anti-Semitism is probably the, the kind of uh, longest running issue that, that he has. Um, and um, obviously, in all of the twists, you have the character of Fagin, um, who is, uh, I mean, I think it's a hundred plus times that he's described as the Jew. Um, and obviously, there are, there, there are uh, a lot of kind of, you know, anti-Semitic tropes mm-hmm. that Dickens hits up there. Um, there are um, there's also um, uh, some very anti-Semitic stuff in a, a slightly later novel called The Old Curiosity Shop, which doesn't doesn't get read very much nowadays, um, but was used to be huge in America. The Americans loved it when it was when it first came out. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I don't think you can you can uh, gloss over the fact that there's there's some there's some shocking anti-Semitism um, early on. Um, but the the interesting thing that 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 I discovered, I mean, I'd always I'd always sort of thought it slightly strange that he was so anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. So um, so the Medway Towns, um, Rochester, Chatham, they are um, so Chatham was a massive. Naval dockyard, it's a Royal Naval dockyard, um, and so um, you know, for 400 plus years, you had all kinds of people coming in and out of there. Like it was a very, very diverse um, community from very, very early on. I mean, this, this happens with dock towns, right? Um, and there was, um, there was when when Dickens was living there as a little boy, there was a well-established Jewish population, and it was really quite well. Right, you'd um, think someone that worldly wouldn't have uh, those sort of prejudices. Makes sense. Hey, yeah, uh, Helena, I'm, was, was, uh, sorry. I'm sorry, we're, we're, we're out of time, but uh, I really okay. enjoyed this book, The Life and Lies of Charles Dickens. I hope people check it out. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. If people want to comment, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I was in my early 40s With a lot of life before me When a moment came that stopped me on a dime couple of minutes before the top of the hour, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. That's Tim McGraw. You ever want to know what kind of music we're, we're playing, uh, just join the Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. You know, it's funny. 
I, um, you know, I've been biking more than a human being should bike. You know, I'm doing 14 miles a day on the stationary bike. And I went to this, um, you know, this uh, event yesterday and I, and I rearranged my schedule so that I can make sure I got my 14 miles in before this event. And then, you know, I see two other guys at this event that I know and somebody takes a picture of the three of us and they show me the picture. And I swear to you. I look like I'm 450 pounds in this photograph. And I am absolutely convinced that all of this exercise is totally pointless. Now, I think it does give you a little energy. And, you know, it does help you stay awake for the drive home. You're not drifting off because you still have all the endorphins going. But it really does uh, seem quite futile. Uh, Now, I know it's not. I'm sure, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years of of biking 14 miles a day, I'll, uh, I'll eventually lose a pound. But my goodness, what a depressing photograph to see. I'm just looking at this now. Rough. All right. Until next hour, your influence counts. Use it.